morning, everyone. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here, and welcome again to Northside. Whether you're watching online with us or here with us in person. Here at North Sub, this book right here is our lifeline. It really is. Uh, without it, all we could do would be to make guesses about who God is. And in that case, we would almost certainly craft for ourselves a God made in our own image. But thankfully, the God who actually exists has made himself known to us, extensively so. And so in this church family, we aspire to internalize the words of this book such that when life cuts us, we bleed God's word. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. To this day, I still don't really know where I stood with my first boss. Background, I was a high school teacher my first five years out of college. It's just, I could never really tell if my principal thought I was a good teacher. First of all, he never saw me teach until my fourth year when he got so tired of me begging for feedback that he finally stopped into one of my classes for 15 minutes. But it went beyond that, though. In the halls, he wasn't, he was like always polite to me, but never warm to me like he was to the other teachers. And so it, it made me nervous. Like, does he, does he not think I'm a good teacher? Maybe somewhere along the way, you've had a boss like that, uh, a coach like that, a parent like that. Despite how desperately you sought their affirmation, that affirmation always just kind of remained just outside your grasp. But beyond human authority figures, I wonder how many of us imagine God that way. His poker face toward us. Always polite, never warm. Always cordial, but never affirming. Like, like God, where do I stand in your eyes? Well, you're doing okay, but let's see how it all shakes out. Is that what God's like? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. This Bible's in the chair in front of you. If you don't have one, you may have seen in this past Thursday's highlights that we're spending these next few weeks preaching through 1 John. But we're starting at the end of the letter, actually, today. Because, well, it's kind of like it's kind of like the movie The Sixth Sense. Anybody you ever see that movie The Sixth Sense? <clears throat> the second time you watch The Sixth Sense, it's a totally different movie. Because you learn, what you learn at the end of the movie totally changes the meaning of all the earlier scenes, right? Won't give it away. First uh, John, though, is something like that. Too often, I think, preachers pluck verses from the early chapters of First John without acknowledging that what John says in the final verses of the letter is explicitly meant to shape how we understand all the earlier verses. So we're aiming to rectify that. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to preach 1 John in five weeks. Uh, each week we'll actually sort of be preaching the whole letter 
because that's how it would have been read originally, but we'll focus on a different feature of the letter each week. On just one of the handful of major themes that gets repeated over and over again cyclically in the book. And so that, that approach is why we've encouraged you to sit down at some point and just read through 1 John start to finish. During today's pass at the letter, we'll focus on this question. Is assurance even something that we should hope for? Like, should we expect to attain confidence in our eternal destiny? To put it differently, does God want us to know where we stand in his eyes? Or is he like the boss who doesn't mind keeping us on eggshells? Just to be totally clear, this, this question is one step back from the question, am I going to heaven? To the question behind that question, namely, does God even want anyone to know if they're going to heaven? Makes sense? So if you happen to be from a Muslim background, you know that Islam rejects the idea that anyone can be assured of their eternal destiny before they die. Same with the Roman Catholic Church. The Council of Trent pronounced a curse on anyone, actually, who claimed to know that they were going to heaven. So it's not uncommon among our neighbors here on the North Shore to hear them say something like, well, the best I can hope for is that when I die, the good that I did will have been enough. Are they right? according to what God has revealed in his word? That's what we're asking. If you've been with us the last few months, you already know what I'm going to say today, namely that God does want each of us to know where we're going. But a few of you have independently responded to this sermon series in the same way. You said something like this to me. You said, hey, I get what you're saying, Tim, but I wish you'd preach 1 John because every time I read that letter, it rips me up all over again about whether I'm good with God or not. So the next five weeks, we're going to attack that first John problem head on. It's the book out of all 66 that has perhaps caused the most anxiety regarding people's eternal destiny because it says things like this. It says, the one who says, I've come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. First John says, the one who says he's in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. It says things like, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Our goal this week, today, is, is a modest one. I want to show you that even in 1 John, even in this anxiety-producing book for some of us that can say things like these, the purpose that John has in mind when he's writing all this is actually that he wants us to close this book at the end of the day feeling assured that we have eternal life. Isn't that wild? If you haven't had a chance to read through the whole letter in one sitting, we hope you have a chance to do that this week. It's about a 20-minute read max. Uh, today we're focusing on the closing verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. There's at least four questions that this passage answers about eternal life. Who gets it? Am I supposed to know if I'm one of those who gets it? What benefits are mine now if I have it, and how do I keep it? We'll quickly pepper through those four, and then we'll try to tie it all together at the end with the big idea. So first, who gets eternal life? Verses 11 and 12. Who gets eternal life? Look at that with me. It says, and this is the testimony 
God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. First observation, this eternal life is given by God. It's given, meaning uh, that it's not something any of us can ever earn or deserve or attain on our own. It's a gift that God has given to us. But when John says that it's given to us, he can't be talking about all humans, right? Because in the very next verse, he's going to draw this bright red line that some receive the gift and others don't. So who's the us that do receive eternal life? We see here in verse 12, it's those who have the Son. That's the answer, those who have the Son. Now, I wonder, what do you think about that assertion of John's? What do you think about that? And uh, I mean, kind of like, like honestly, what do you think about it? I'll start to me, the way the world works, or at least seems to work, doesn't always seem to line up with 1 John 5.12 in my estimation, right? Like it seems to me that Elon Musk is presently living the life, that my friends who post on Instagram from exotic places are living the life. That celebrity pastors with huge followings, they're living the life. So how do those observations square with John's words here about who does or doesn't have life? Am I, am I the only one who has those thoughts? But then again, I have to admit, I don't know how... How many of those people that I imagine as living feel like they're really living? You know what I mean? I mean, it looks like life from afar, from my vantage point. But you've read what I've read, maybe, that many celebrities are actually miserable. And maybe a lack of correlation between money, sex, power, fame, and experiencing life shouldn't be surprising to us when we think honestly about even our own experiences. For example, when you thought you were just one new pair of shoes away from really living, or one job promotion away from really living, or, or if, if I could just find my soulmate, then I'd really be living, right? And then you got exactly what you were chasing after. How long was it before you just went right back to but if I just had, is it days, hours, minutes? <laughs> no, as, as stark and offensive in our world as the black and white language of verse 12 seems in, in this shades of gray type of world, it's hard actually to defend any kind of counter assertion that it's possible to found life, like life with a capital L, somewhere else apart from Christ. And to clarify, I'm not talking about merely feeling alive, 
a drug can temporarily simulate that feeling of euphoria and life to the full. Right? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about actually being alive with a life that remains whether we happen to feel alive or not happen to feel alive at a given moment. I'm talking about stability that carries us through circumstances that would otherwise cause us to break. I'm talking about hope that sustains us when we would otherwise be crushed. I'm talking about a depth of love and relationship that would otherwise escape us. I'm not just talking about a sensation of life. I'm talking about experiencing the authentic article, life. In order to have life, you've got to have the sun. Do you have the sun? Second, am I supposed to know if I'm one of those who has eternal life? Like if those who have eternal life are those who have the sun, yes, I want to know whether I have the sun or not. But first I want to know, am I even supposed to be able to answer that question definitively? Verse 13. I have written these things, John says. This is at the very end of his letter. I have written these things, everything preceding this, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's it. He's given us the purpose statement for his letter. What's the purpose? Why has he written all these, written these five chapters? So that you may know that you have eternal life. Takeaway. God wants us to know a certainty whether we have the Son. God wants us to know a certainty whether we have the Son. We call that assurance. <clears throat> assurance. It's this path that the Christian is called to walk. We keep showing this graphic throughout this series. It's this road there in the middle. Biblically speaking, this assurance comes from four sources. You've seen this graphic too. Though the four aren't equally weighted, uh, the driving assurances of salvation are the blood of Jesus and God's promises. The blood of Jesus shed for us to take away our sins and God's promises that he will make good on his plan to save those who believe in him. The supernatural source of assurance is the witness of the Holy Spirit who gives us a subjective sense in our own spirit that yes, we do belong to him. And finally, the confirming source of assurance in scripture is the fruit of a transformed life, obedience, as we live in a way that increasingly matches up with the belief that we claim to have so this is the path that the christian is called to walk right here assured of salvation but there are these two ditches one on either side threatening to divert us from this path and to get us stuck one way or the other the first you might remember is presumption that's a flippant uh yeah i'm, I'm sure i'm good with god the other is unhealthy introspection that's a debilitating paralysis in which we never feel confident that we're good with God. And check this out. We, we fall into the presumption ditch when we ignore the fruit of, obe of obedience, which was the final uh, confirming source of assurance here. This fourth one is the tricky one. We fall into presumption when we ignore that as if it doesn't matter how I live. We fall into the unhealthy introspection ditch when we elevate that, the fruit of obedience, and start to imagine that our eternal destiny is made or broken based on the good or bad we do. It's about keeping these sources of assurance in the right place and keeping the fourth one in that fourth place. It's not unimportant, but it's not ultimately the most important. And y'all, these ditches 
are so easy to fall into. So easy to fall into. And our enemy is just as happy to see us fall into either one. I remember exactly where I was the first time I heard a preacher open up 1 John and tell me that if I had any unrepentant sin in my life, that I wasn't saved. And that shook me to the core. I know some of you have had similar experiences because you've told me. Since then, reading through 1 John, or reading parts of 1 John, has sent me personally into this ditch more times than I can count. The ditch of unhealthy introspection. But recently, Greg Gilbert helped snap me out of it. It's this book I keep referring to. but this is all from First John. This is, he just points it out and you know narrows it down. Here's what I'll just read through it. This is this is directly from the text of First John. By this we know that we have come to know Him. Therefore we know, because you know, because you know, we know, you know, we know, you know, we know. We shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For He knows everything. We know that He abides in us. You know the Spirit of God. By this we know, by this we know. So we have come to know. By this we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. So that we may know, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 513, so that you may know that you have eternal life. 37 times in 30 verses, John says, the goal of this book is knowledge, not doubt. And this is the book that I'm going to let work me up into paralyzing doubt? In other words, if we read 1 John and it leaves us in this ditch over here, it's not John's fault. It's, we're reading it wrong. He's, I know all over it he's trying to show us, help us to know. right? He's writing this to produce in his readers a sigh of relief, not a cry of despair. Now, there are three major tests in this book. Uh, And we'll unfold them in the weeks to come here. But we need to remember throughout this next month that even the three tests are not included in 1 John to generate uncertainty, but rather assurance. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you have eternal life. Third, what benefits are mine now? If I have eternal life. That's where John goes next. Verses 14 and 15. What benefits are mine now? If I have eternal life. He gives one. But it's an important one. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask. We know. That we have what we have asked of him. So I can't fit it up on the screen, but look back at the flow of the passage again in in your own Bible. We just had verse 13 about knowing that we have eternal life. Then in verse 14, we're all of a sudden talking about prayer. Right? So I'll make a confession here. During my preliminary study of this passage, a week or two ago, I wrote on my brainstorm sheet, why this random drastic change in topic from assurance, verse 13, to prayer, verse 14, didn't compute for me. Then I started opening up some commentaries, and one by one, they shamed me in a good way. Uh, they said things like, 
to some it seems disjointed to transition from eternal life to prayer because they imagine that eternal life is something other than knowing God. John 17, 3. In other words, in John's mind, he's not switching gears at all from verse 13 to verse 14. Prayer is the soul of the Christian life to John. It's the greatest benefit of eternal life that we get to personally commune with the God of the universe. All the other religious stuff that we do would be a sham without it, without prayer. That was convicting for me. And then on further reflection, I realize it's maybe like this. To want eternal life, but to be indifferent toward prayer would be like if my favorite musician gave me backstage VIP passes to any concert I wanted to go to on his tour. But then I let the tour go by without ever once taking him up on it. See, if we're not interested in communing with God, which is what we do in prayer, why do we even want eternal life with him? Eternal life would be miserable, actually, if you were ambivalent about intimate connection with God, because knowing God intimately is the whole point of what eternal life is. So what benefits are mine now? One major benefit that John mentions here is that we have direct access now to communing with God and prayer. Now, notice how I said that. I'm, I'm asserting that verses in four, 14 and 15 are about communing with God in prayer rather than getting what we want in prayer. It's different, but maybe I'm off. Doesn't verse 15 indicate that he'll say yes to whatever we ask? Isn't that what it's saying? And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Some Christian traditions take this verse, John, 1 John 5.15, to mean that God will give us anything that we pray for in faith. Call them uh, name it and claim it, Christians, right? Of course, our experience contradicts their theology. We've all prayed for something and not gotten what we prayed for. But the name it and claim it folks, they have an answer to that. Namely, you just don't have enough faith. You need to pray with more faith. Then you'll receive what you ask. Is that what this verse is teaching? That we should be certain that God will say yes to whatever we ask if we just believe deeply enough that it's already ours? Well, when God said no to the prayers of Moses to go into the promised land, to the prayers of Paul, about the thorn in his flesh, to even the prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane, repeated prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane to be saved from the cross. Was it, was it because those three didn't have enough faith? No. No, God sometimes says no to us because he isn't at our every whim. Verse 15 can't mean that God is our personal genie. The Bible doesn't support that. So what is John saying then? I like how one commentator thinks it through. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, John doesn't see prayer as convincing God of what we think he should do. Rather, to John, the highest goal of prayer is communion with God. 
That's why you pray. That's the ultimate goal of it, to connect, to commune with God. So if God hears us when we pray, a two-way connection has now been established. A speaking, him hearing. We, we've been united with him intimately, face-to-face, as it were. And so we have already attained the highest goal, at least the highest goal of prayer, if not the highest goal of the Christian life, communion with God. And it's in that sense, then, that we know that we have what we have asked of him because what we've ultimately asked of him is intimacy, connection with him, to be with him, to know him relationally. And if we give that more than a moment's thought, we probably all agree that we don't actually want God to say yes to all our prayers. Think of the prayers you fervently prayed when you were 13 that in hindsight would have been a disaster if God said yes, right? There's a whole Garth Brooks song about it. Some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. This is one of the times when country music theology is correct. It's great news that God says no to some of our prayers. As Tim Keller puts it, God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. I'll say that again. That's Tim Keller. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. So if we can be utterly certain that he hears us, which we can, we're in his hands. Whether he gives us what we've asked for or not, we've already got the best thing we can have, namely a two-way relational intimate knowledge of him and that's the major benefit of eternal life that's ours even now in the sun now final piece of the puzzle if i've got that sort of life awaiting me for all eternity plus all the benefits with of intimacy with god that come with eternal life now man i don't want to lose that i want to hold on to it so how do we hold on to eternal life that's where that's where john wraps up how do i hold on to eternal life Verses 16 to 21. Here, here's a thought that I have sometimes before we read it. <laughs> Considering the amount of times that I've been so close to going off the rails, like significantly going off the rails, already, I'm in my mid-30s. How in the world am I going to make it to 70 still a Christian? Just an honest thought. Not a one-time thought for me. I have that thought regularly. I am prone to wander, in the words of the hymn writer. So how do I hold on to eternal life? These final verses of the letter provide a few answers to that question. Let's look at it. It's too long to put it all on the screen, so you're going to need to follow along with me in your Bible or Bible app. Starting with verse 16, I'm going to read now, verses 16 to 21. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. We know 
that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one. We are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. How do we hold on to eternal life? First answer to this question, ready? God won't lose any of his own. That's what I see there in verse 18. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin, but the one who is born of God, that's Jesus, born of God by Mary, but then born of God by the Spirit. The one who's born of God keeps him. Jesus keeps us. And the evil one does not touch him, namely the one who belongs to Christ. So there's an evil one. The whole world's under his sway, according to these verses. He wants to pull us away from God, to derail us, to get us off the tracks, to keep us from reaching the finish line in the faith. But, according to verse 18, God won't let him touch us. Even without the evil one's influence, though, you say, well, I have my own sin that threatens to derail me. But it says here that Christ won't let that derail us either. The one, everyone who's been born of God does not sin. The one who's born of God, Christ, keeps him. Christ is the one who's been born of God. And we've been promised that he will keep us. Isn't that great news? Second answer. Christ, elaborating on the first answer, Christ often uses our communities to keep us. Our communities to keep us. In other words, Christ doesn't often just preserve our faith in a vacuum where he supernaturally intervenes and removes us from tempting situations, though he could. He more often does it through other believers in our life who play a role in helping keep us from our otherwise inevitable drift off the rails. Check it out in verse 16 again. This verse is worded from the perspective of the believer who notices sin in another believer, but I want us to think about it from the other perspective, from the perspective of the person who is in sin, but you're blind to it, right? So I'm I'm thinking of myself right now as that person. I'm in sin. I happen to be in sin at a given moment. I'm blind to that sin. I don't realize I'm stuck in sin. First, according to verse 16, if I'm in sin, I need a fellow believer to notice my sin. See how it starts? If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death. Not that that person is on a witch hunt to dig up all the dirt that they can in my heart. No, this is a situation where I've committed a sin that they can see, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin. Second, once that fellow believer has noticed my sin, they've seen it, I need them to pray for me. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those that commit the sin that doesn't lead to death. Before they do anything else, they should pray for him. Yes, we're told all over the New Testament to gently confront fellow believers who have fallen into sin. But John reminds us that before any such confrontation should come prayer. And then what does God do in response to such prayer? Well, he answers my fellow believer's prayer on my behalf and gives me life. God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. In other words, 
God awakens me to my sin and empowers me to turn from it, thereby confirming that I am indeed in possession of eternal life. Now, that's that three-step process laid out here in verse 16. That process, though, assumes that I've committed a sin that doesn't lead to death, to use John's language. But does that mean that there's a type of sin that even my community of prayerful believers can't rescue me from? According to this passage, perhaps there is. We're going to camp out here for a moment just because it relates to our assurance, a, a, a sin that leads to death. Identifying this sin that leads to death in detail, although I'd love to take 10 minutes and do it, is unfortunately outside the bounds of what our time allows today. But since it does relate directly to our assurance, let me just point out this. That nowhere in the Bible does it suggest that God will refuse to forgive anyone who repents and asks him for forgiveness. We don't have any suggestion of that. In other words... The so-called unforgivable sin, as some call it, that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, and the sin that leads to death here, um, neither of those, they, or they both seem to be talking about sins that are unrepented of. A person hasn't turned from the sin. They don't want to be forgiven of it. They don't want to be rid of it. That means that by definition, if you're worried this morning about whether you have committed the unforgivable sin, the sin that leads to death, your concern itself indicates that you haven't committed that sin. Does that make sense? Robert Yarborough points out that in context, it seems that the sin that leads to death is sin that the person refuses to let go of, specifically along the lines of the three tests throughout the letter, resolute rejection of Christ, chronic disobedience, and persistent lack of love. If that's where a fellow professing believer has gone, John says there's no obligation to continue praying for that person. But when there's any sliver of hope that this person, whom I love dearly, this person in my life, might not yet have set their face against God in a permanent, decisive way, in that situation, we're obligated to pray, according to verse 16. Because God may use our prayer, my prayer, to turn them back. God may use your prayer to turn me back, back to him. And that may be how he preserves me and keeps me saved till the end. Much more that could be said here. Uh, Texting questions if you have them, and I'll be able to respond to them either at the end of service today or later this week in the emails. But I hope that you can see the role that the community of believers is meant to play in the work that God does to keep each of us Christian. This is why we hound each other about church membership and accountability and small group participation the way we do here at Northcliffe. And I appreciate you putting up with it, but we do it because detached from this sort of community who will love us enough to pray for us and correct us, every one of us would run off the rails. We just would. We're prone to wander. The community is the primary means God uses to do his work of keeping us saved. My community can't help me if I don't invite them into my life enough to see my mess. That said, my community's role in keeping me saved doesn't 
absolve me from responsibility for my own walk with God. In fact, John chooses to use the last words of his letter to reiterate our personal responsibility. He says to them, little children, guard yourselves from idols. It's the final note of the book. Effort. It's not a four-letter word in the Christian faith. Even while my community is helping me, and even while I ultimately know that Christ is preserving me, I need to be ruthless in uncovering my own idols, those things that I worship above God, doing whatever it takes to rid myself of them. In doing so, it'll be God working in me to do just that. So to summarize these three answers to the question of how we hold on to eternal life, I'm going to try to put it together like this. How do we hold on to eternal life? Well, we ask others to notice our sins. And when they pray that we'll be rescued from our sins, God uses such prayers to keep us, all while we make effort to resist idolatry. That's a lot. Say it again. How do we hold on to eternal life and not lose it? Well, we ask others to notice our sins. And when they pray that we'll be rescued from our sins, God uses such prayers to keep us, all while we make effort to resist idolatry. So, who gets eternal life? Those who have the Son. Am I supposed to know if I'm one of those who has eternal life? God wants us to know with certainty whether we have the Son. What benefits are mine now if I have eternal life? Well, we have direct access to communing with God in prayer, for one thing. And how do we hold on to eternal life? We ask others to notice our sins, and when they pray that we'll be rescued from those sins, God uses such prayers to keep us all while we make effort to resist idolatry. In light of all that, our big idea today is this. Having helped each other be assured of eternal life, community project, let's claim the benefits of our status. Having helped each other be assured of eternal life, let's claim the benefits of assurance. Friends, God, he's, he's not the boss who wants to keep you walking on eggshells. He's not. Assurance is not a gift that he's withholding from you, keeping it in his pocket until you say the magic words or push the magic button. God wants to give you assurance. And if God wants to give us assurance, it's right for us to seek it wholeheartedly during those seasons when it seems to be eluding us. <laughs> but that's the thing, isn't it? That, that even when we find it, assurance, it's not all that easy to hold on to. It's kind of slippery, actually. Uh, as Martin Luther pointed out, he said, because eternal life is a difficult mystery, we must treat of it constantly in order that we may retain it and grow in faith. It's not like geometry, which suffices once it has been grasped. But these things must be learned assiduously, and it is through tribulations that we must be exercised in learning them. That's a good word for those of us who find ourselves, how am I back here in this place again where I'm doubting whether I belong to Christ? Martin Luther says, of course you are. It's not like geometry where it's one and done and you learn it and you never have to learn it again. We have to keep learning experientially over and over and over in new seasons. It won't be enough, in other words, to say this morning, I'm assured, and then close the book on that quest. We need to keep coming back to this path, this middle path, seeking the deep assurance that comes from the gospel and the promises of God. 
Let's be a community that helps each other toward this, toward that path. Ask somebody to tell you what they see in you. When you notice something in someone else, positive or negative, don't just let it go. Pray for them. Share with them what you're seeing in them, and we'll, and we'll journey together into a deeper assurance than we've ever had before. We have a chance now to put this scripture text into practice as we shift our attention to the communion table right here. When it's communion Sunday, you're familiar that the officiant asks those who don't yet belong to Christ to abstain from partaking while those who do belong to Christ do partake. And that monthly rhythm requires some self-examination each time. Do I truly belong to Christ? If month after month I hear those words said from this stage and I flippantly say, self-examination for someone else, I'm good with God. And I just kind of casually take communion with my mind on the afternoon's recreational activities. If that's what I do, then I may be in danger of this ditch right here, presumption. But on the other hand, if month after month, the call to self-examination at the beginning of communion time causes me to abstain from communion because I don't feel worthy of salvation despite my sincere belief in Christ, now I may be in danger of this ditch. In other words, it may seem humble to say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if someone as sinful as me could belong to Christ or not. But that's actually prideful. It's prideful because if God says he wants us to know that we're saved, then it's not presumptuous for a true Christian to know that he or she is saved. It's actually presumptuous for a true Christian to doubt that he or she is saved because we're setting ourselves up above the God who has declared that we not only do belong to him, but that we should know that we belong to him. That doubt, in other words, is a direct affront to God's promises. God wants us to know with certainty whether we have the son. If you've never laid hold of that certainty, it's time now to let him give you that great gift and to take communion today with a fully assured heart. Heavenly Father, I pray that for every person here who belongs to you, who, who is known by name, by you, whose names are written in your book of life, who have been joined to you in faith, for every such person here in this room, I pray that these coming moments will be moments of deep, deep assurance where they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they belong to you despite their sin, despite their frailty, despite the sins they even committed this morning before coming here. Not on the basis of what they've done, but on the basis of the blood of your son. Help us to cling to that in such a way that we can take communion this morning assured. Not self-conscious, not doubting your promises to save us, but confident that you will make good on what you've said, that you will never let go of any of those of your own and that you want us 
to walk this morning in full assurance of eternal life. So God, I pray for the person here as well who doesn't yet know you. Pray that you would bring them to the end of their quest of chasing after life in all these other places that do not satisfy and that don't ultimately bring the life that they're looking for. And in their despair and and in their failure to find what they're looking for, help them to find that life in you. In the only place where it can be found, in a relationship with you and with your son. Help these coming moments be a time in which we deeply connect with you. In Jesus' name, amen.